This is episode 19 with Dr. Michael Unger, and today we're talking about resilience, how you as mothers and parents can raise mentally strong kids in today's world. If you improved their resilience, you gave them more structure, better relationships, powerful identity, lots of power and control, you gave them all the things that you want a child to have to raise, be raised well, and they were in a challenging community, then they did things like they really went to school more. But if you, you know, gave lots of quote unquote resilience to a child who had no stress in their life, they became these narcissistic little brats. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. What is the difference that makes a difference in a child's life? Why do some children thrive while others stumble when life gets tough? What do children need from their parents? What makes a problem child problem-free and flourishing? Dr. Michael Unger is convinced that from all of his years of working with troubled kids that we have what it takes to help every child succeed. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to walk fast, walk alone. But if you want to walk far, walk with others. This was shared in one of Michael Unger's book. He also talks about how children's problems velcro to them over time that all kids want is a sense of belonging and for their lives to serve some bigger purpose that we need to monitor our kids enough to keep them safe but not so much that they can't grow up and learn to be responsible for themselves so who is dr michael unger he has a phd in clinical social work He's a professor of social work at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Child, Family, and Community Resilience. Since 2002, Dr. Unger has directed the Resilience Research Center, focusing on the research of resilience of marginalized children and families from eight different part of the world and adult populations experiencing mental health challenges in more than a dozen low, middle, and high-income countries. He's been helping children and families involved in child welfare, mental health services, refugee and immigrant youth populations, and community resilience, including resilience to violent extremism. He's a marriage and family therapist, a speaker, is a father of five in a blended family, Dr. Unger has published over 180 peer-reviewed articles and, and books chapters on the subject of resilience and is the author of 15 books. And I counted 15 books. A lot of them are all about resilience and also for mental health professionals and researchers. Two of those books I've read and absolutely love, love them. Um, they've opened my eyes to what it takes to raise a child that's mentally strong and how to promote an environment that creates a strong family. So one of his books that was published last year, Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. And the other one, which we'll be talking about today, is I Still Love You, Nine Things Troubled Kids Need from Their Parents. So without further ado, let's listen in on our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Michael Unger. Thank you for being and taking the time today to be on Citrus Love Podcast and to talk about resilience and how parents can raise mentally strong kids in today's world. Nice, nice to have this opportunity, Christian. So one of the main factors for starting this podcast was to focus on supporting mothers on how they themselves can be mentally stronger on their mom journey, which impacts their kid. But 
in today's society, we're seeing this drastic rise of mental illnesses, troubled children. And I mean, especially it's they're getting even younger. And it causes me to worry, where have we gone wrong? What are we missing when we're parenting? What are our kids missing in, in order to feel and view themselves as these capable beings, being resilient enough, confident enough to go through the ups and downs of lives without crumbling under the stress or pressure. So today we are bringing light to the question of what makes certain individuals more resilient than others. What's your definition of resilience and is that different than the science of resilience? Well, when we think of resilience, too often what's happened is that people think about it as, you know, bouncing back after adversity. And that definition, while, you know, kind of common, puts a lot of emphasis on individuals doing the bouncing. What the science of resilience actually tells us, and this is where I get this through all the research I do globally, as, as in all the stuff I do, as well as my clinical work, is that we bounce back better when there's other people and supports that we need to do well. So like the idea that somehow, you know, a, that a child is going to be bullied at school and somehow just, you know, you know, pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, have a little bit of positive thinking and suddenly be okay, <laughs> kind of is like that is this story about resilience, which is completely blaming of people who don't succeed. And instead, what the science now really says and what we really know is, look, yes, a positive attitude in a situation like that helps a child, but it's also the supports they get. Let's start from the school in terms of creating a safe school environment. It's about having a peer or a friend to buddy up with, to protect you from the bully. And of course, it's about having a parent at home who's going to sort of cuddle you and remind you that you have good self-worth and everything else. So I'm amazed that sometimes like I hear people talking about resilience as if it's all about we as individuals, mm -hmm. when in fact we know, and the research is really clear on this, that the better we are able to, and I'm going to use the two words, navigate to resources and negotiate to get what we need in ways that is meaningful to us. When I meet people who have successfully navigated and negotiated for the supports they need, then I see people who are resilient. And whether that's a child or indeed a parent, um, there's lots of good evidence that that's actually how resilience works. I feel, and you've mentioned in your book as well, is I feel like today it's all about self-help, empowering yourself and affirmations, meditation, all of these focus on the individual and not on, like you said, um, having that outer support. Do you think this is part of why maybe a lot of people feel disconnected and alone and mm. not as strong because we're focusing on finding your inner strength yeah yeah and the it's it's it i mean unfortunately the i, I hate to say it people get really invested in these uh, ideas so in terms of of people really getting through a crisis it's so much more important that we begin to think about all the the different uh opportunities and supports we get like, like for instance let's face it if 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 you're a mother and you're trying to you know get to a yoga class or, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, doing something good for yourself, if that's even a game of, you know, some sort of sport or get, you know, getting to your Monday night soccer match or something. Right. And I always say to people, oh, yes, you can focus totally on your own self and your own attitudes. But look, you're probably going to be more effective and more likely to get to those events and to, the, you know, if you also first negotiate with your spouse or your or somebody to say, are you going to look after the baby while I'm going and looking after myself? And we know that there's a feedback loop, of course, the healthier and happier and more content and more balanced and more fit you are as an individual, as the adult in a child's life, the better the child is going to be as well. But we so often focus on, okay, you know, you just got to get out there and, you know, do the yoga. And I'm going, well, <laughs> hang on a minute. Actually, before you go to the yoga studio, talk about whether or not you're going to have the supports around you to support you. Because what we actually know is you will go three or four times to that yoga studio and then you will quit because you will be so frazzled by the time you've taken the child and bundled them into the snowsuit and taken them someplace and everything else. You know, and then you get to the yoga studio, <laughs> breathe three heavy times and then you go home. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, who's going to do that more than three or four times? You're going to burn out. 
Mm-hmm. But somebody encouraging you to say, you know, I really like you after you've gone from the yoga student. You're calmer. You're seem more centered. You're much more responsive to the child. You're, you know, so I'm going to support you to do that. When we actually think about our resilience as embedded in systems that have to be more resilient, and we begin to sort of think about changing the world around us before we just focus on changing ourselves, what the science actually tells us is that what the change, the changes we will make will actually last longer have a more profound impact. And if you want to take it to the level of parenting, it's really clear that healthier parents raise healthier kids. There's a direct, you know, we are embedded. Our children are looking to us for that inspiration to be their best and kindest selves. Mm -hmm. I want to know, why did you start focusing your research? You opened a research center. You've written so many books on the topic of resilience. What was your deep connection or passion for trying to figure this out? Mm-hmm. It's a great it's a, it's a great question. I, I, I actually, when I started working with young people in, in different contexts in their families, I would hear these amazing stories of young people who had done better than I would have ever expected. And I, I got really interested in how did you explain that? Because, I mean, so much of the field of like clinical social work, family therapy, psychology focuses on why people become ill, what, why people break down. So mm-hmm. I was kind of tuned in to suddenly thinking, well, why are these people doing better than I would have ever expected? And I, I discovered so- something called hidden resilience early in my career, that it was patterns of people, you know, a, a child will choose to throw a temper tantrum to get their needs met. They'll an adolescent might join a, a, a group of delinquent peers to, to, to feel like they have more opportunities in life. And if you change those opportunities, then generally people will make better and more socially desirable decisions. Now, to be honest, Christiane, I think I came up with that idea because my own sort of past history, I, I emancipated at 16. I, I mm-hmm. do just tensions in the home or whatever. I, I went, you know, I sort of left home at 16 and was totally on my own and sort of supporting myself as well. And I think I was tuned into thinking about what it is, what is it that one needs to survive and thrive when you're under stress, uh, partly from my own history, but also from, you know, just being inspired by the people I was, I was working with. Mm-hmm. So let's also define what's the difference between a problem-free child and a flourishing one, because you say that this is an important distinction to understand. Yes, absolutely. You know, it, it, there's, there's an idea in the mental health field called, and this is a little technical, but it's called the two-factor model. And we get it really confused. What we tend to think about is, if you say to, you know, people say, well, what's mental health? I say, well, n- you know, mental health is not feeling bad. It's not being depressed. It's not having an anxiety disorder. And that's actually not quite true. You see, whether or not we have a disorder, whether or not we're actually feeling depressed or we have a, a anxiety or depression or something like that, that is like one line, one, you know, we either have the, have the mental health problem or we don't have the mental health problem. But if you think about it, we can also think about our mental health in a whole different dimension. And that dimension is whether or not we have the things we need to feel great. So for instance, you can be depressed, say, after you know, even after the birth of a newborn child, you can be suffering from some sort of um, depression or something like that. Uh, This is not uncommon. But if you think about, I still have sense of self-esteem, I can maintain relationships with others, I still embedded in a community or extended family that love me and care about me. In other words, you can have all the factors related to, well, resilience in your life, Mm -hmm. even as you're experiencing a mental disorder in your life. And so what I'm really trying to get people to understand is what you want to do is, well, even before you have the disorder or during the disorder, for that matter, you you want to be developing the things you need to make your life really solid. I'll give you a, a, a concrete example. I currently live in a community where we've been there now about 10 years and we've really gotten to know our neighbors. You know, there's, you know, we have roaming potlucks. We do Christmas parties. We do New Year's <laughs> parties. We, we, you know, recently someone's putting in a new kitchen and we've been swarming them with casseroles so they don't have to cook. Um, <laughs> and they'll, and they've come over and helped us when the snow was above my head and we couldn't get out. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, like it's a community. And we've been thinking about, for instance, doing some renovations to our house. It's getting a little bit old or whatever like that. 
We thought, well, we should just go buy a new house in a different community. And we realized, now, hang on a minute. That's not the most resilient thing for us to do. It's far better, even though the house we have maybe, you know, it's not the perfect house or something like that. But the whole idea is, so why not stay in that community? We have resources. We have these connections with our neighbors. We have a social safety net, which makes us as a family stronger and more resilient in a crisis. And to give all that up just to have a benefit of a, I don't know, a bigger whatever, you know, suddenly doesn't sort of make sense. So I'm always saying to people, you know, think about some of these resources. In, invest if you're in a workplace. Think about investing in celebrating other people's birthdays. C- create a bit of a community there for yourself by partly sharing your, you know, your triumphs and your challenges. But, but those investments will ultimately pay that dividend later on when you really do need someone to understand that, you know, maybe, you know, God forbid your child is sick and you really do have to leave work early and you need people to backfill you or something like that or an empathetic boss to understand why you're doing that. These are all things that don't just happen immediately. They're seeded through, you know, bit by bit, all those little contacts, all those little moments where you pay attention to others, those things accumulate in your life so that you have that resilience when you need it. And that's why, frankly, you go to talk to your, you know, if your child's in elementary school, you go in and meet the teacher on parent teacher night, not because necessarily there's anything wrong, but maybe sometimes just to anticipate that if ever something, if ever something does go wrong, you'll have that built relationship. There'll be an element of trust and confidence that you're, that you care about your child. There'll be an easier for that teacher to reach out and make the phone call. These are all things that seed our capacity to later on withstand complex and even very difficult stressors if and should they appear in our lives. Wow. I Wow. I think that you found why there's so many um, problems nowadays. It's the lack of, even though we're a connected world, uh, relationships aren't always as strong. Wow. Yeah. And in fact, we're not that connected. That's the problem is that is that we're, though, you know, I, I love so, social media is good, uh, you know, the, the chance to get more information, we have all that. But at the same time, we still need to get to the back to some of the basics too. In other words, the, the, the advent of new technology, new information, new podcasts, new, uh, new access shouldn't necessarily still take away the, the coffee chat at the mm. local coffee shop. We need both. We and, and if I might, with children, there's some a lot of emerging evidence now that, you know, young children really should be pulled back from screens. If the child is holding an iPad as you're walking, you're strolling them down the street, they might be amused and they might be quiet. But what they're actually missing is all the opportunities to develop language and social cueing and social interactions. And we're now beginning to understand that children who are given these iPads in their strollers are actually are being given at a disadvantage developmentally that, you know, people say, well, it's, it quiets the kid down. Yes, it does. But it also means that that child is not actually listening to complex language conversations with other people, nor are they picking up all the, all the learning of the social interactions that they need. I mean, let's face it, if you're driving and when I was growing up, there was no none of this tech. And so if we were driving, I was bored in the back seat. That's not a great situation for most kids, but you do learn self-regulation. We now teach our kids in school self-regulation skills, and I'm going, hang on a minute, drive them to grandma's. <laughs> You'll teach them self-regulation by just telling them to be quiet in the back seat, mm-hmm. you know? And and suddenly, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. Gosh forbid. I I, I mean, it's difficult when you ch- you know the kids are fighting in the back seat and everything else. I get that. I've lived that. I got that T-shirt many times over. I have threatened. I've parked the car at the side of the highway and threatened to tell leave my children there. So I, let's, to be honest, I never actually would have opened the door. But they did not know that. Um, and 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 but but you know we we've we've lived that but the point of that is i'm now understanding in my in my more clinical work that that those experiences are actually not just sort of cast offs they are part fundamentally of raising children who have this ability to create social relationships and one of the biggest challenges right now with teenagers is actually that they're not forming social relationships um your listeners might be kind of surprised. I mean, I know a lot of people will be still with younger children, but with adolescents, actually, we're seeing a a huge decrease in, say, sexual activity amongst adolescents. And that's that's really shocking because everyone thinks it's the opposite, right? The kids are actually more sexually active these days. Mm -hmm. But actually, kids are less sexually active these days. 
And that, I mean, on the surface, that's a good thing. There's less risk of pregnancy and everything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But actually, it's actually not a good thing because for the last 70, 60, 70 years, the rates of sexual activity amongst adolescents has been pretty consistent. So in other words, you know, your grandparents and you and, you know, it was all pretty much the same rates, right? Suddenly we're watching kids fracture intimate relationships with others. And my point is, if we back that up to little kids, you know, we don't want them just on screens. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with a little bit of time, but but when you start using it as a supplement for genuine interactions with people, at first this was kind of like, oh, we're making a big fuss out about nothing. But now the science is sort of catching up and we're beginning to understand that this is actually maybe not the best thing for kids. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about something you wrote that I found very insightful about children trouble kids, uh, that our children are not their problems. They are children first with a keen desire to do whatever they need to do to survive and thrive the next. Their problems are expressions of their pain and confusion. Um, I thought, wow, <laughs> that yeah. um, it's, it tells a lot. I mean, kids are so innocent in a way that they show what they really feel, how they can express themselves. So with all we hear, like bullying, school shootings, suicide, you think that in a developed country like like we are, Canada or, or United States, that you wouldn't see that many problems. Last year, I I called like a, a psychologist clinic and on their answering machine for child psychologists, they, there was a waiting list. And I thought, a waiting list? It's crazy. And one of the things we've talked about is, like you said, to help kids succeed and thrive, they need opportunities would it be like positive influence so they can become more resilient and grow yeah well it's it's a bunch of things first of all yeah definitely i mean when you observe i mean it's one of those um truisms now about clinical work if you know if you're going to see a psychologist or a clinical social worker or any mental health professional and your child's experienced any trauma you're going to quickly see that the, the way that those problem behaviors are approached now is we don't we no longer see it as a bad child. What we say is that bad things have happened to that child. Mm. And therefore, the child is simply responding, is doing whatever they can, cohesion, a sense of well-being, um, feeling whole again within a, a very chaotic and disrupted environment. So often the behaviors are actually, they, they might look explosive or dangerous, but actually their response is to try and say, how can I keep control of myself and my world? So that that's sort of it. And you know, and then we can respond. We can we can give kids things that they need because you're right. The, the anxiety disorders. I mean, we know very clearly. Uh, certainly, Canada, where I live, the you know it, it, we've seen a huge spike, about a 75% increase over the last decade in a, in emergency room visits by ch- adolescents reporting anxiety disorders. And so we mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. know that this is a serious problem. And it's not just about better diagnosis. It's about an increase. And part of that is. That, yeah, as parents, we're, we're awfully good at the overprotective. We're good at the protecting, but we're not necessarily good at building the capacity for resilience to give kids the experiences they need. And I, I, I've said elsewhere in some of the stuff I've written about, we, we really do need to think about whether or not we're giving our children manageable amounts of risk and responsibility. And, you know, overprotective parenting doesn't necessarily um, give children those opportunities. I, you know, I, I tease parents, you know, think back to when you were a kid and, did you take risks? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and we all get a little squirmy and uncomfortable with thinking back then. But did we learn something from taking those risks? Well, probably. And were those lessons helpful to us in life? Possibly. And then I always ask parents, look, I know you're focused on protecting your kid, but how are you going to give them the same opportunities to learn what you learned? And unless we give, we, we shift the focus from protection to also encouraging kids to have experiences to develop incrementally and to develop the, the, the long-term sets of skills they need. So when I think about resilience, I'm thinking about, well, for kids, it's about nine different things that kids need. And I, I write about this in another book called um, uh, I Still Love You, and it's all about these. Yeah, I read it. It's so good. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun to write as well, because I, I kind of wrote it as like almost like a fictional story. It's about family, real families. But I wrote it more as a story about three families going through counseling and what they learn week to week. And 
but it's all based on real challenges that families that I've worked with have gone through. And I, I just wanted to kind of convey that, you know, kids don't change instantly, but if you give them these opportunities, and we as parents can really do this, we we can give kids the opportunity to make decisions for themselves. We can give parent kids opportunities to have powerful identities, to, to, to like themselves, and that's cued from us. Um, we can give them structure and consequences that they can actually fix their mistakes. And we can give them a sense of their culture and a sense of belonging. We can give them real responsibilities. And, and of course, we give them safety and other things like that as well. And when we as parents, you know, reach to our kids and actually make those things happen in our child's lives, then we create the opportunities for that child to thrive. It, you know, if very much like saying, you know, if you have you know two children who are constantly fighting and they're arguing and stuff. Well, you know, we provide the structure, we separate them, but ultimately it's still about giving the child some control. So you say to that child, okay, you can play with your sister or your brother again, when you can convince me that you're ready to play with them without hurting them, without hitting, without being disruptive or whatever the the condition is. Rather than, you know, I know sometimes parents say, you know, five minutes, you're absolutely, you know, for five minutes, you have to stay separated. And I kind of prefer, well, hang on a minute. It's arbitrary then the time. I've taken all the control. I've not given the child, I'm not really teaching the child how to self-regulate. I'd rather say to a child, okay, separate. That's my imposition of the structure as a parent, but you can come back and play again or come back and watch television or be in the room or whatever, participate in the activity when you can convince me that you're ready. So the child storms up to and says, I'm ready. Well, (laughs) that doesn't sound ready to me. Go back and try it again. But if a child comes back and says, okay, I'm ready. I won't hit. Okay, I think you're ready. That may have taken 30 seconds or that may take three hours. Point is, is that then it's, it's about teaching the child how to communicate. It's about all the good life lessons that makes a child ultimately better able to cope with stress in school and classrooms, better able to cope on the playground and ultimately better able to coping relationships later in life. Mm -hmm. I have to say about this that um, you wrote that rules don't show a child their love, but when we are willing to be flexible in how we enforce the rules, we show compassion. And I thought that was great because it's not a one size fits all, but that kids enjoy rule. Well, they want rules, but they want flexibility. <laughs> they do. They, do. They, they actually do better with structure. Uh, you know, it's an interesting piece of the science that after a major disaster, like a major flood or God forbid, a school shooting or something like that, the best practice, the thing that people who specialize in mental health and psychosocial support after major disasters actually know is you can get a child back to school because people always think, oh, you send them to the psychologist. Watch, well, you don't send them to the psychologist. What you do is the best mental health intervention is getting them back to school. And the reason you do that is because the school provides the structure, the accountability, the sense of life purpose. It settles a child with their peer group and caring adult. It's all those different things that actually give them the resilience or create an environment, or in a sense, you've changed the world around the child to give them the resilience that they need to withstand the potentially traumatizing experience that they've had just recently, whether that's because of a, a wildfire or they've exposed to something really bad has happened in their family or their, or elsewhere. So we're always sort of um, trying to think about from a child's point of view, what it is that they actually need and which relationships are most important to them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good. I wanted to talk about a few of these points from your book, which um, I thought were, were amazing. At the point on the consequence, you mentioned that it's teaching our children through natural consequences, that if they make a mistake, something will happen and they have to take responsibility to make it right. Talk a bit more about this. Well, that's it. I mean, so many times we parents, I mean, the child is being, you know, rude and disrespectful maybe as a teenager and we take away their cell phone. I, I can't quite figure out how being rude and disrespectful equals cell phone removal, but <laughs> there's no connection there. A natural consequence is, well, if you're being rude and disrespectful, then I'm not going to get into a car and drive you somewhere because frankly, I don't hang out with people who are being rude and disrespectful to me. If you don't do your chores and I have to do your chores for you because it, you know, it just absolutely has to get done, then that's 15 or 20 minutes less time that I have to do something nice for you. Um, which is probably, you know, maybe it's a, it's a special activity or getting something ready for a special activity or helping you with your homework or something like, in other words, I think we have to be a little more genuine 
I, you know, with with our with our children so that they get a sense that their contribution is actually necessary to the household. And I'm always sort of thinking about the, you know, the real consequences to their actions. If you can match the consequence to make the child feel uncomfortable as a consequence of their of what they've done, then that's far better. Like, you know, let's face it, like, you know, an eight year old can pack their own soccer gear or, you know, get themselves ready for an outdoor uh, an activity or something. And, you know, the, the real consequence there is, of course, parents will often overfunction and they say, oh, no, I'll pack because I don't want them to show up at the soccer field without their shin pad or something. And my point is, no, 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 let them show up at this soccer field at least once without the shin pad because they'll be benched. You still go. You don't run home and get them the shin pad. You let them sit on the bench for that one hour. And parents are so hesitant to do that. But my point is that you do that once and chances are the next time, you know, there's a natural consequence there. So the next time you ask them to pack their gear, they will probably get it right. Maybe not Mm -hmm. the second time, but definitely the third time. And now, of course, if this is like, you know, if your child's Sidney Crosby and this is the final hockey match and they're missing a piece (laughs) of gear so they can't be on the ice and they're going to let the whole team down you go home and you get the missing shin pad or something, right? <laughs> like, you know, I'm not insane, right? Um, but I'm amazed that sometimes we just don't simply, um, you know, give the child the opportunities to learn from their mistakes enough so that, you know, and, and I know sometimes we can't, like, you know, the the child, you know, it will sleep in, they, they won't come down to breakfast, they're going to miss their school bus, and then we have to drive them to school or something like that. It becomes a real imposition on us. But where we can maybe make that situation a little bit more uncomfortable. I knew one parent that said, well, if you ever miss a school bus again, you're going to come to work with me. And my work <laughs> is really boring. So the child ended up sitting, this was like a, you know, an eight or nine year old sat in their office and they, they set it up with their boss beforehand. Right. And they had the ability said, I, I, my kids being really acting up, you know, I'm going to sit in there and they're going to read or do homework the whole time I'm in my office. I know it's going to be a bit disruptive, but if you don't mind, just this will solve this problem for me at home forever sort of thing. They dragged him to the work and the kid was like, this is really boring. And say, so, yeah, well, when you and, you know, that's my that's my grumpy boss over there. When you make me late, this is actually what happens in my life. Like, I'm amazed that we don't make this real for kids. Mm. Um, we take away for some reason, we take away kids allowance when they don't do chores. And for me, I don't pay my kids to do chores. I give them an allowance so they can learn to manage money. If there's a birthday party, they have to buy the gift for their friend. They have to think about saving money. They have responsibility. So if they want to go to the store, they have some money to spend. Money is about money and money management. So I'm not going to take away that money. I'm going to give them a consequence that's much more realistic. So if they haven't done a chore, then I'm going to make that uncomfortable for them. So if they haven't emptied the dishwasher, and you just keep doing this and keep and then put the put the dishes on their bed. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, look, I'm, the dishwasher had to be emptied. Uh, I don't I'm not going to continue to do this. The dishes are on your bed. You put them away. Um, oh my, oh my. You know, like like there's yeah, things that yeah. we can make our kids feel a little bit more uncomfortable. I, I mean, if you really I mean, I'm not sure I'd be quite this vindictive. But, you know, if the job is to walk the dog and they haven't walked the dog, then just lock the dog in the room with the mm. child in the morning. I kind of guarantee you the kid's going to, oh, my God, the dog's in my bedroom and the dog is really whining to go out. Hmm. I, I think I better get up and take yeah. the dog. Now, that could be a little bit too mean because if that dog, you know, pees on the floor, you may not want them being on the bedroom. Right. But my point is, is that, you know, how do we make the kid uncomfortable rather than us, rather than us suffering the consequence, which too often occurs? And then the message to the child is like, you know, I don't really have any consequences. So, so I'm, I'm seeing this pattern. I'm learning this from families, by the way. This isn't all my own wisdom or my own children. I'm, I'm understanding this from, from parents who are saying, you know, the best consequences are the ones that make the child uncomfortable and that the child can actually fix the mistake that they've made. Then you get that magic sweet spot where there's good learning. It's not burdensome and it doesn't destroy your relationship with your child either. Mm, that's good. And this builds resilience for them. It's, oh, so it's, it's some solving. It gives a child a sense of control. It gives them a sense of a sense of belonging inside families. It sense that they have responsibilities. Uh, it makes them feel safer. It, it gives them a structure to their life. It it hits so many. When, when we get this right, uh, it, you know, a, a parent who's really given a child that. And, you know, the funny thing is I've learned this from children who living in places in the world where they have huge amounts of responsibility, often for looking after younger siblings or cooking meals. I'm talking like 10-year-olds here. And I've learned this from children in those contexts where really they should not be doing that, right? That this is far mm-hmm. in excess. 
child's responsibility should be. But when you talk to those kids in those situations, they don't always say, oh, this is a bad situation for me. What they actually say is, I'm making a real contribution to my family's welfare. I'm really helping out. And then I come back into my own sort of cultural space and and we don't give kids any responsibilities and we don't Mm -hmm. help them accountable in any way. And the end result is not positive. It's actually quite, it it doesn't raise the kinds of what I say, that competent, caring contributor to your community, these four C's, which are so important for kids to to, to become. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the powerful identity, because like you were just talking about, kids are looking to feel special, that they matter, and to, to convince others In the book, I Still Love You, you shared this one exercise I thought was great that I wanted to mention about parents asking their kids questions <laughs> to help them discover this powerful, um, positive identity for themselves. Like some examples you shared was when you look in the mirror, who do you see? Um, who do you think others see when they look at you? Right. Among among your friends, what kind of person is the most respected and I've never heard of it yeah. <laughs> this way. It's so direct. I feel like kids are looking to to find an identity for themselves in many different areas and how parents can help them find this in a safer an environment um, to help them guide them, I guess, in a way. What's your thoughts on, on oh, this absolutely. one? Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, what it speaks to is this notion, again, of changing the world around your child. So you're creating, like, rather than just saying to the child, go and, you know, go discover your talents or think think positive things about you. Mm-hmm. What you're actually cueing the child to say is, think about what you're actually seeing. Think about how people respond to you. Think about finding opportunities to use your special talents. And I, you know, I quite often work with children with severe learning challenges or emotional disorders or physical challenges. I mean, those children can answer these same questions. Somebody is going to value them for some contribution that they're going to make. So the trick is always to say, you know, what can your child do that's extra special and is a contribution? Um, I'll give you, a, give you a small example. So, you know, we'll often, we'll say to kids, you know, for chores, we'll say, oh, you know, you go and clean something or empty the dishwasher or, or clean up your toys or do whatever. And the problem with those is they provide structure and accountability, but they don't actually give children powerful identities. Whereas if you give a child a chore like, well, I actually need you. Uh, the one I always love is, you know, grandpa's having his birthday, you know, and someone has to bake the cake. And I always think that, you know, if you give a child a genuine responsibility that brings with it a powerful identity and you're willing to sort of let it um, kind of fail, look like one of those Pinterest fails, you know, uh, <laughs> That's okay. Like, what do you think, honestly, what do you think, which cake do you think grandpa would prefer? Your beautifully iced, even round cake or the one that his, you know, seven-year-old granddaughter has baked, which is Mm -hmm. lumpy, soggy (laughs) in the middle, icing's caving in, everything's smeared, but it was, and that seven-year-old brings it out from the kitchen and says, happy birthday, grandpa. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know that the answer is the second, right? Mm -hmm. that we forget that. And that in that moment, when we say to kids, I want you to feel like you're really part of this family. I want you to feel special. Well, that's not just a cognitive brain exercise. That is something that we get reinforced back to us by actually being able to contribute and help someone else make an impact, um, do something that makes the world a little bit better place for somebody else or looking after ourselves. So there's always that, that dance with a child to give them you know, real powerful identities. Um, they don't have to, by the way, they don't have to be the soccer star. They don't have to be the the expert. There's other spaces that you can be good and, and a contributing member to your community, right? You can be the one who simply helps clean up. You can be the one behind the scenes. You know, you can be the one that remembers to fill the water bottles. Um, you know, that, that there are lots of ways that we can feel needed. And with that sense of need um, to also be, you know, feel like we're special. Um, another example, maybe for older is my, my son, who definitely had no trouble with self-esteem, was uh, would DJ when he was uh, in high school. He picked that up as a skill set. And what I really loved about what he would do is he would then find some of the ch- young people, the children in his junior high that were really like more ang- on the spectrum of sort of anxiety disorders or on the autism spectrum or these kinds of challenges. And he would ask them to help set up the equipment. Now, they would never be comfortable standing in front doing the DJing 
or, you know, with the microphone in there in front of them. You could invite them to actually, you know, climb up and put a speaker in and plug in the speaker cables and make that wonderful big pop sound, you know, that happens when you plug in a cable. And, and like there's a real contribution there that carries with it the sense of, well, belonging and new relationships and the powerful identity that I'm worth something. That's the kind of concrete experiences that we want to program into, whether it's a 14-year-old or a four-year-old. Uh, you want to be programming those real genuine experiences into that life. Mm, that's beautiful. Oh my God, it's so good <laughs> what you're saying. Um, another one I wanted to talk about quickly, uh, rights and responsibilities, which you've already talked about. But you said that our children need to be shown how they can talk back to people who exclude them or take away their rights. I thought this was really good because uh, with all the bullying, I mean, almost every child gets bullied at some point as a child, teenager, or even adult in their workplace. But one thing I've always heard for myself is, and I hear from parenting coaches, is that I want my kids to be nice. I want to raise nice kids. And I'm thinking, for me, nice is also like, don't talk back. So I'm wondering what yeah. what is the right way to teach our kids <laughs> to defend themselves? Well, the first way is, of course, that we model appropriate standing up for our rights, right? I mean, that's the first thing where our kids are always going to, you know, if we're belligerent and rude and kind of obnoxious as parents, well, unfortunately, you're going to get your own child talking to you like that as well. So mm -hmm. there's always a bit of a, you know, let's face it, we unfortunately, or fortunately, model for our kids. But then there's also coaching our kids too, in fact, how to stand up. So, you know, if a teacher is having a problem with my child, I'm, you know, I'm going to really encourage that child to talk to the teacher, uh, to stay, you know, in a very respectful way. And let's face it, they may not win, you know, they may not win everything they want to get out of this mm -hmm. conversation. But the point is then to at least understand how you advocate, how you problem solve, how you talk respectfully to a person in authority figure. Um, but sometimes it's also about pushing back and resisting. And that I think that we constantly are coaching children on their rights because one of the things we sometimes forget is it's very hard to be resilient if we are also not having our rights respected. You can't bounce back if people are calling you names that are you know, racially motivated. You can't bounce back if you're being put down because you're a girl and not a boy. You, you know, you can't just bounce back if you if you have a learning challenge and no one is teaching you in a way that you need to learn. So so there's there is definitely an element of, of, of fair treatment that, that goes hand in hand with our resilience. Um, now, that also means I like to count, you know, rights and responsibilities. So the two year old who says no also has a responsibility to still do the things that they have to do for their for their own well-being or to, you know, to to be part of a family. So, you know, standing up for our rights and say, no, I don't want to brush my teeth. Uh, you know, this is not a negotiable. My, <laughs> rights, my demand on you trumps your demand to say, you know, your right to say mm -hmm. no. So there's always that negotiation here, of course. But it is important that we encourage our children to, to you know, to, to stand up and, and say what they like and what they don't like. Um, I was very inspired by a, a woman named Barbara Coloroso, who used to do a lot of parenting talks. And, you know, she talked about, you know, you don't give a, a three-year-old the control to decide their bedtime, but you do give them the sense of control to decide, do they choose the red pajamas or the green pajamas? You know, that mm -hmm. type of thing, right? And for me, that's that's kind of what you want. You want you want to give children voice and respect their choices when it's age and developmentally appropriate. And you want to teach them how to stand up and voice those things that they they want. You know, the other thing I, I'm amazed by is that we don't often teach our children even how you have proper conversations with our kids. The, the most common pattern I see, especially with, you know, kids as they get up into their, you know, eight, nine, ten, is, you know, the kid comes home from school or something and the parent starts asking questions. Oh, did you get your homework? Do you have your things packed? Are you going to do that? Where are you going next? Did you clean up your room? Did you, you know? Like there's no modeling in there how you have a, a proper conversation with someone. I, I've been encouraging parents, if you're getting a surly kid that's just shrugging their shoulders, turn that conversation around a little bit and said, when the kid comes in, says, oh, I'm really glad you're here. I want to tell you about my day. It's mm. like, what? Yeah. You know, this is mom saying, hey, I just had I just had a really wickedly good blank happen in my life <laughs> or. Or I just, oh my gosh, I was, I, I was down and that was, oh my God, it was so frustrating. I didn't know what to do. Like when this happened, 
And then mm-hmm. do you ever ask your eight or nine or 10 year old, what would you do in a situation like that? Do we ever actually like model how you have proper conversations with our kids? Mm-hmm. And I think if we do, I, I think the end result is that they have the skill set they need to actually function just a little bit better. So there's this dynamic between helping them, you know, they're watching us, but then we also have to show them how you actually stand up for your rights, how you problem solve and how you take control of situations. And by the way, don't be surprised if, you know, if you're rude and belligerent, unfortunately, with people, your child may mimic that. And, you know, it, it's a really a tragedy. Often, you know, we can change children if very much by changing the world around them, as I said, but by, by really emphasizing that, that we are coaching them. They are watching us and they will mimic us. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about one specific research you did. So you're the director of the Resilience Research Center in Dadouzi, Halifax. And in your book, you talk about this specific one. You were comparing the children raised in, let's say, middle class suburbs and overall safe communities versus a child raised in a poor community with high crime rates and violence and which ones were more resilient and how the results were different than what you had expected. (laughs) And I love this. So basically, you said that a child that was in a safer community, the child that was more resilient was the risk taker. And the other community, the poor, the one that was more resilient was the one that followed the rules more. So can you tell us why this <laughs> surprised you? Well, well, what we found was, I mean, so here we are. I'm, I spend so much time working with parents and communities to develop more resilient children. I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. what I do, right? And when we did some of this research on a kind of related topic, what we actually saw was, weirdly, the children who came out of more challenging environments, where they were actually stressed a bit, if you improved their resilience, you gave them more structure, better relationships, powerful identity, lots of power and control, you gave them all the things that you want a child to have to raise, be raised well, and they were in a challenging community, then they did things like they really went to school more. And they, their delinquency dropped and they did, they were really nice, well-behaved kids. But if you empowered and, you know, gave lots of quote unquote resilience to a child who had no stress in their life, they became these narcissistic little brats <laughs> who just, you know, like, and the problem is, is that if you inflate, so let's say, friend, if you are not giving your child any challenges and then all you do is inflate their sense of self-esteem. So if the message is you don't have to earn your self-esteem. You don't have to earn a powerful identity. You're on the soccer pitch and every and I'm there in the in the in, on the sidelines making sure that you play exactly the same minutes as every other player. And I'm making sure that no one ever says a bad thing to you. And I'm making sure that you know that you never hit a speed bump, that no teacher ever fails you, that mm-hmm. nothing bad ever happens. And you do that and then you inflate that child's sense of power and control and and self-esteem and self-worth. And, you know, you're going to get a narcissist that, frankly, is actually going to become more delinquent, potentially. It's not a good message to a kid. You don't want to just inflate their quote unquote resilience. What you want is then to be adequately stressed, a little bit of stress to develop the right so that when they learn these things, they're, they're understanding that they have to sort of you know, that self-esteem comes from genuine contributions. I'll give you a small example. My daughter, when she was a bit younger, was teaching swimming to um, like six and seven-year-olds. But, you know, the child would not pass level three swimming because they couldn't swim 25 meters across the pool or something like that, right? And the parent would come to her after and say, well, no, you can't fail, you know, my little my little Johnny because his self-esteem will be hurt and he won't be, you know, he should really go on to level four. And my daughter would say, well, but he can't, swim the minimum requirement and if he goes into the next level he's gonna have to swim 50 meters it's like Mm -hmm. your son is going to drown (laughs) you know like like and suddenly this parent is putting it into this idea of it's all about self-esteem and oh he'll be harmed and so no your child didn't conquer the skill set this is a good life lesson that they didn't put enough effort in or they or developmentally they just aren't able to do it yet it's not about bad it's not about you as a mother or father have failed it's just is you know when you keep inflating a child's self-esteem and you say well, well they're going to go on to level four anyways then what you've inadvertently told the child is that they don't have to try and at some point that child is going to know let's face it when they're swimming across the pool and they can barely make the 50 meters and they're sputtering away and all the other kids are doing it they're not going to feel self-esteem 
they're actually going to feel embarrassed. And most children in that situation respond by becoming mildly, well, delinquent in a sense. They will start acting out. They will start saying they don't want to go to swim lessons. They want to. They will start feeling stupid. They will start poking the other kids. They will start acting out. They will do anything to be disruptive to avoid feeling stupid. Mm-hmm. So, so in a very concrete way, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you want to build resilience, but you also want to expose children to manageable amounts of risk that are age appropriate so that when they do develop these capacities, that they're genuine. They're not fictional. You know, you're special just because you're breathing. You want to be known as special because you've actually done something like made grandpa's cake, no matter what that cake looks like. Mm. I have to say that uh, for me, this is like the most important dilemma I have because as a parent, I want to keep them safe. But I mean, we live in a good community. There's no violence or right from the start. There's not much stress on, on them. So how will I raise resilient kids that will be able to defend themselves and be strong enough to navigate the stress that will come in their lives? So it's like trying to find ways to create, not create stress, but I guess for for me, it would be just give them more responsibilities and consequences for their action, right? To build this resilience. Uh, I mean, absolutely. What I mean, Christian, what you really, I mean, you're on track with this. You, you, you know, you, a lot of us do live in very safe communities and actually there's, you know, statistically very few dangers to our kids. So we don't always want to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um So, so somewhat the challenge here has to be to, you know, to give your child manageable and, of course, age appropriate and community appropriate responsibilities and risk. What I what I encourage parents to do is is to focus a little bit less on the protection side and a whole lot more on what you're trying to get as a product. I mean, what is it you want your child to eventually be able to do? And if that's the case then you want to sort of stay focused a little bit in the future about what am I actually trying to help my child learn to do so they can do this as a well-functioning child and later as a well-functioning adult. Uh, you know, you want your child to to have an experience where they, you know, they, they go down a, a, a ski hill or something or, a, uh, you know, that they have an opportunity to pet a dog on the street or something like that. That, you know, these are, you want them to have manageable amounts of exposure to slightly what might be perceived as slightly dangerous things so that they overcome the fears that they're ready to take on the next challenge. In fact, what we know from the science on this is the children who are most at risk of hurting themselves are not the children who have been sort of coddled, but actually it's the children who have had these manageable amounts of risk. So if you take two children up on a ski hill, you know, the one that's most likely to harm themselves is the one that has actually had the less opportunities to experiment and to go down the blue or the the black diamond runs when they're younger. You know, if you have a child that has an inflated sense of confidence, but has never actually had those opportunities to take on a manageable amount of risk, they're more likely to make mistakes. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I often say, you know, you want your child biking on the road, be, be on a bicycle on a not a terribly busy road, but a real road, so that when they're finally driving a car, that they have some sense of the rules of the road. I know that might sound, you know, a bit disconnected, but, but you do want to incrementally get your child ready for these, for these life lessons. So, you know, making decisions for themselves and, you know, obviously I'm not going to let my child dash out between parked cars on a busy street. That's eye control. <laughs> That's too much risk. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in the playground for a two-year-old and there's a large uh, monkey bars or something and the child wants to go all the way up to 10 feet up in the air, well, then I'm going to let the child climb as high as they want. I might stand under them if I feel more comfortable, but I'm not going to limit them if they're choosing to make that decision. Now, that's assuming there's not shards of glass below them and <laughs> swarming the ground. You know, like I'm assuming this is a reasonably, you know, this sandy bottom. And, you know, and what we actually know is that 99% of children will only climb as high as they feel comfortable so that they feel that experience of control and are making decisions that's appropriate for themselves. Yeah, there is something there that actually the children will make good decisions. So I want to touch on something you just said. So the child will go as far as they're comfortable going. Should we encourage them to go farther or just let them go where they're comfortable doing think, things? Well, again, it's always a dance with the child. If you have a okay. very shy, withdrawn, anxious child, then a little bit of encouragement is probably helpful. 
mm-hmm. setting it up. You know, I'll, how about this? I'll stand under you while you go a little bit higher this time on the monkey bars. Let's give it a shot. Let's see how you can do it. Right. That's the kind of, you know, that's very positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also like, you know, that, you know, we children have a range of personalities. I'm, I sometimes have parents when I do parenting talks, I'll sometimes have parents come up and say, you know, my child's very shy and I'm a bit worried about them. And I say, okay, well, do they have any friends? Oh yeah, they have one really good friend. Okay, and are they sleeping at night and eating? Oh yeah. And are they like complaining about this? No. I'm going, your, shy, your child just sounds shy. <laughs> it's like a nice introvert mm-hmm. and that's okay, right? So there's always gonna be a range of personalities that we wanna encourage children to be. But I think we as parents structure the environments around them to give them, you know, manageable amounts of risk and responsibility. So even the introverted child might, well, go to the library and be encouraged to, you know, if they're a reader, then maybe you want to give them a book that's three, four, five reading levels above them and let them really struggle for them. That's their risk taking Mm. for the child who's the outdoor sports enthusiast. It's saying, okay, let's go up the chair left and do the double black diamond this time, you know? and then be embarrassed as a parent when the kid does it better than you. But, you know, it's 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 definitely a little bit of that kind of negotiating with the child to find the right fit for them. You don't want them to feel super uncomfortable. The whole point is to push your child a little bit out of their comfort zone. Okay. Is there a timeline by which kids need to learn like the science of resilience, how to be resilient or that it can basically be learned at any times of their lives for it to change their behavior? I would say that there's, you know, we can help them any point in their life. I mean, definitely, you know, it begins, certainly two-year-olds can become more resilient when they're, you know, encouraged to learn a little bit of self-regulation and, you know, encouraged to sort of calm down on their own by a gentle timeout and, you know, learning responsibilities for others and how to ask for what they need. These are all good resilience skills appropriate to that age. But of course, you know, even if I'm working with a 17-year-old who's being badly traumatized or is just dropping out of school or that that child too, you can still teach those resilient skills. You can encourage them to take three deep breaths to become more mindful of their bodies. You can teach them how to develop the social and emotional learning skills that they need to make friends. Um, You can encourage them to take on new identities and take on new tasks. You know, I always say it's, it's better early, but it's absolutely never too late. And if you can't do it on your own, by the way, don't hesitate to reach out to a therapist, uh, someone who can help coach you and work with you and your child to make sure that the child's world is optimal for their psychosocial development. I mean, it's hard to do this all on our own. And, you know, sometimes we can reach out to a a grandparent. Sometimes it's a it's a counselor. Sometimes it's a teacher. But it is a a, definitely a community affair to help a child realize their their best and boldest self. Mm -hmm. Basically, to sum it up a little bit, to help kids thrive in this world, uh, the best way to do it for them is to have a strong support system, lots of relationships with different people that influence them positively, give them responsibilities and a sense of belonging that were one of the main things we, we discussed today. So where can listeners find more about you, your research, articles, you've, your many books you've written? What's the best way to uh, learn more about you? Sure. Well, my website, um, michaelunger.com, and it's U-N-G-A-R. So it's michaelunger, all one word, dot com, um, has lots of links and some of the podcasts, some of the uh, videos of me sort of talking about this stuff and, and of course, links to the books and stuff like that. You know, really, it's about uh, there is a great I have research sites and stuff, too, which are linked off of michaelunger.com as well. Fundamentally, though, it's it, yeah, I, I encourage people to just, um, you know, engage with these ideas and think about resilience and and hopefully move from that highly individual idea of resilience to much more understanding that we can actually create environments that are making people much more resilient. And that that's kind of the, that's really what we want to do. Mm-hmm. I just want to finish off with one last question. I asked everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences, keeping motherhood inspired. What one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your parenting journey? Well, look, honestly, I think I think it was having a sense of humor <laughs> about this. I mean, you know, when your teenager rolls his eyes at you, you just got to laugh. And when your two-year-old has, um, let's just say, an explosive bowel movement in the backseat of your car on a hot day when it's 40 degrees, you've got to laugh. 
you just gotta, you know, you just gotta shake it off. You just gotta go, this is just too absurd. I find that that creating a little bit of a positive mindset towards this and going, you know, you know, good times will follow bad. And of course, getting the supports to share those stories with others and just have a, you know, just that wind down. Don't, don't try and do it alone and try and, you know, in, encourage a, that, that a little bit of a chuckle about it all as much as you possibly can um, seems to get that was that's certainly what got me through it. You know, I have kids now in their 20s and in their late teens. And, um, you know, it's still a set of challenges that it's changed, but it's um, you still got to sort of just sometimes just shake your head and just chuckle along with what with what's going on. Mm. Well, thank you again, Michael. My gosh, that was wonderful. A real pleasure and all the best to you. Uh, um, lovely to to uh, lovely to be able to do this. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired Podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening, two, three, four, five, six stars, whatever you feel reflect podcast. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye guys. <laughs>